with. I also want to uh, actually just share with everyone that what Rabbi Smith is doing here, the Rebbe actually started in memory of his father. This specific call that Rabbi Smith is doing is actually was started on one of the yard sites of the Rebbe's father and the Rebbe started it. And um, that's a very personal thing. The Rebbe usually didn't let his parents' name go on to things regularly. So God bless you, Rabbi Smith. And uh, may you grow spiritually, physically, and uh, all good stuff. Amen. 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 I want to share with you what, what I'm going to, uh, I believe Rabbi Smith sent out a link here, and you're looking at, at it right here. What happens is that the Rebbe, the Rebbe Blessed Memory, his discourses were very unique. And the reason why the Rebbe's discourses were very unique is because the Rebbe was the se- is the seventh in the lineage of the Rebbe's. And therefore, he was building upon all the teachings of his predecessors. And what happens is that when we learn the Rebbe's Maimorim, the Rebbe's teachings, he's coming from a point of view where you already studied his predecessors. And what the Rebbe ends up doing is something just magnificent. Because on one hand, it seems to be that he's tying up the loose ends, but yet... The Rebbe always did it in a certain fashion that brought an entire transformation to these teachings. So it's not like just, okay, I'm adding on a little, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but rather the Rebbe, when the time he takes a concept of his predecessors and he brings it to us, it changes everything of the way we've studied it. Um, I will share with you something just to understand this concept. You know, in this Shabbat, we read in the Ethics of Our Fathers a teaching that says, in 10 ways we know the wise, and in the opposite, we know the fool. And one of those 10 things is that a wise man, when he didn't hear something, he says, I didn't hear it. So you tell him something, and... He's not going to lie to you. He's not going to say, well, oh, yeah, yeah, I already heard that. No. Oh, wow. This is interesting. I never heard this before. So Hasidim would ask, one second, the opposite of someone who, when he doesn't hear something, says he doesn't hear something, is a liar, not a fool. If you say that you heard something that you didn't hear, that's a lie. That's not foolish. Now, Hasidim used to explain like this. When you heard a teaching... And someone's repeating to you the teaching, but he opens up a new door to that teaching, which changes the entire teaching from the way you understood it previously. The fool won't get that. The fool is just going to say, the minute you start telling him this, oh, yeah, 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 I already learned it, I already learned it, I already learned it. The wise man's going to say, wow, you know, I learned this previously, but I never heard this angle This detail, which changes everything. When we study the Rebbe's Hasidus, we need to be very, very wise to understand that there's a dimension here which changes the way it was understood until now. And therefore, here is a perfect example. So I'm going to give you some background to this specific teaching, and then I'll share with you how you see 
the teaching, the transformation that the Rebbe applies to it. So number one, this teaching was taught by the Rebbe in 1978 on the holiday of Shavuot, the Shabbat, right before Shavuot, 1978, the Rebbe shared this mimer. He delivered this mimer. Now, the reason why I chose this specific teaching is because you're going to see that the calendar coincided exactly like our calendar. Tuesday, this Tuesday is Rosh Chodesh. The Svirata Oma, the counting of the Oma took on a special, a special dimension, just like this year, because the first day of every week, we count Saturday night, which means Sunday. That means that Friday night, we complete a week. That means that when it says you shall count seven complete weeks, this year, as in 1978, it literally means seven complete weeks. And we'll see what that means to us. So because the calendar coincided to the way we have it this year, Tuesday being Rosh Chodesh, and then the Spirit of Omer having complete weeks, each one of the seven weeks of the counting of the Omer, starting on a Sunday and ending on a Saturday. And because the Rebbe makes mention of this, I chose this specific mimer to, uh, to work on this year. So what happens with this mimer? So let me give you a little bit of a background. In Hasidus in general, um, in some of the Rebbe's teachings, in his predecessor's teachings, there's a huge emphasis in what happened at Mount Sinai. So there, you're familiar probably with the Talmudic dispute whether Abraham was the first Jew, Avraham, or whether at Mount Sinai there was the mass conversion. Because on one hand, we always refer to Abraham as the first Jew. But on the other hand, we say no. Judaism as, as a people started only at Mount Sinai. That's where we had the becoming the people. I want to share with you, parenthetically speaking, that this dispute was so serious that Abraham was in a predicament, according to the opinion that he is the first Jew, he's allowed to keep Shabbat, even though he wasn't obligated at the time because God didn't give us yet the laws of Shabbat. That happened right after we left Egypt, before we got to Mount Sinai, but Abraham would be allowed to keep the Shabbat. However, according to the opinion that Abraham was not a Jew, he's not allowed to keep Shabbat. Now, if he's not allowed to keep Shabbat because it's punishable by death, the verse says that God gave it to the Jewish people as a sign. And that's why until this very day, when someone is going through the process of conversion, every single Shabbat up to the day of his actual conversion, he has to or she has to transgress Shabbat because they're not allowed to keep Shabbat. Most of the times they tell the person, just go into the bathroom once on Shabbat, turn on the light, turn off the light, done. So you see that this, the Talmud is discussing what did Abraham do? Because it's a serious question whether he was the first Jew or not. By the way, some commentaries give this brilliant answer that he wore the talit, he wore the tzitzit. How would that work? Because if he's Jewish, it's a garment he's not carrying. If he's not Jewish, he had no reason to wear that garment. 
So that would be considered carrying. So Abraham found a way to cover all bases. If he's a Jew, he's keeping Shabbat. If he's not a Jew, he's not keeping Shabbat. Now, why did I get into this conversation? Because it seems to be that according to the opinion that Abraham was the first Jew, there seems to be just a slow evolution in how this is taking place. And Mount Sinai, which actually, like Rabbi Smith mentioned before, Mount Sinai began at the exodus of Egypt, as God told Moses by the burning bush, I'm taking them out of Egypt in order that they serve me at this mountain. The burning bush was on Mount Sinai, and God was telling Moses that the whole process of the exodus was for no other reason than to bring them at Mount Sinai and give them the Torah. So it seems to be that there was this slow evolution that keeps on growing. Starts with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Abraham and Isaac, both of them did not have all their offspring to be Jewish. Um, uh, Abraham's offspring from Hagar, at least from Sarah, was, was Jewish, from Hagar wasn't Jewish. Then comes along Isaac, and here we have from the same mother, you have Jacob and Esau. Now, even though there's opinions that say that Esau was Jewish, but nevertheless, it's one opinion. So it looks like only by Jacob, all his children are Jewish. Things are evolving. They come to Egypt. They start having certain laws. Maimonides tells us that Moses' father gave them certain laws that God commanded him to give. It's evolving. You go to Mora, all of a sudden in that place, you have Shabbat laws, you have other laws. Then you come to Mount Sinai, and this is the moment. And, and parenthetically speaking, even that isn't the moment. Because the Talmud tells us that from Mount Sinai until the story of Purim, which happens 70 years or around that amount after the destruction of the first temple, was only then that it really fully happened. So it seems to be a slow evolution in, in I would say, in quantity growing. However, that is not the case. Pre-Mount Sinai and post-Mount Sinai was not just a quantitative change in God's relationship, but it was a qualitative change. So much so that we quote the verse of our prophets that says that the works of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was nothing more than like the fragrance of the oil. However, we, post Mount Sinai, we are not just the fragrance of the oil, we're the oil itself. We're pouring the oil itself out from the heavenly cup upon heaven, upon earth. Now, simply speaking, you're all familiar with this concept because when Moses complains to God at the end of Parsha Shemot, and he says, why have you done bad to this nation? You sent me to ease and to take them out of slavery. But Pharaoh reacted by making it much worse. And God answers Moses at the beginning. He answers at the last two verses of, of Parsha Shemot. And then in the beginning of the era, he answers him something magnificent. It seems to be that what, that didn't answer his question. But God says, Va'era and I appeared Ella others to the forefathers, but with them I only appeared with certain names. 
with the name Kale, with the name Shakai, and obviously I'm mispronouncing them. So I'm not saying God's name in vain. And, but with the name of the ineffable tetragrammaton, the four letter name that we don't pronounce, that name that did not appear to them. And even there in Hasidus, it questions, what do you mean? Look at when God told Moses, told Abraham about doing the circumcision, he did use that name. So within that name itself, there's the higher untouchable level, and then there's the lower level. And God is telling Moses, the reason why the Jewish people are now suffering even more, because they're literally, they're literally at the moment of receiving an unprecedented relationship with me. Hence, there has to be the absolute scorching of the vessel to completely remove arrogance and ego so they can be a transparent, humble vessel to enter into a relationship that even their forefathers did not have. Now, that is something that we really need to understand because all over in Kabbalah, we call our forefathers chariots, markava. The definition of a markava means that the chariot has no, absolutely no will, no decision, no desire in which direction it's going. It's the rider absolutely in control. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every single organ of their body was at a point where they were just absolute, total self-abnegation. All they had was the will of God flowing through them. And now we're saying, oh, but even that Markova, even that level of the chariot, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the holiest of the holiest, you should know that they did not have the relationship with God that you and I have. Their relationship with God was only fragrance, which fragrance has no essence. The wind blows and the fragrance is gone. But we have the essence oil. That we need to understand. So we know already in Pasha's era that God's telling Moses something unprecedented is going to happen here at Mount Sinai. And therefore, they're going through that extra cleansing process in the smelting pot of Egypt, in the refinery, so to speak. And now, we have to understand what does it mean that we have what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not have. Now, what's interesting is that in most teachings, we talk specifically about this question. And the way this question is presented is from a statement in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that Avram Avinu, Abraham sat and learned Torah, Isaac sat and learned Torah, Jacob sat and learned Torah. We have this teaching. So over there, the question is, so if so, what's the whole big spiel out of Mount Sinai? God gave us the Torah. No, God already revealed the Torah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they taught it and all. So what, what, what's the big spiel? That's how most teachings begin this conversation that we're about to have. The Rebbe in this teaching begins it differently. The Rebbe in this teaching begins not with what we have compared to the forefathers. The Rebbe starts his question with us ourselves at Mount Sinai. Now, to understand the Rebbe's question, I want to just go over with you 
what the Talmud says, the, the order of the calendar as it happened in the year 2448 at Mount Sinai. We're now in the year 5782. So we're going to go back and see. So just that you know, before I get into the calendar, there is a dispute. There's two opinions in the Talmud, whether the Torah was given on the 6th of Sivan or the 7th of Sivan. The difference would be that God told Moses that he should have the men and women prepare themselves and purify themselves for two days. And on the third day, I will reveal myself to them. That's the way the verses read. There are sages that say that what really happened was that Moses added on a third day of purification. God accepted what Moses did and gave the Torah on the seventh of Sivan. We right now are not going to follow that opinion. We're going to follow the opinion the way we actually celebrate the holiday in which we have the sixth day of Sivan as the giving of the Torah. So, Follow along with me for a moment what happened on the six days of the month of Sivan. So Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, I'm going to quote you what the verse says. And they arrived in the desert of Sinai and Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. So on Rosh Chodesh Sivan, they arrived at Mount Sinai. On the second of Sivan, a couple of things happened. Moses ascended to God. And Hashem called him from the mountain and said to him, so shall you say to the house of Jacob, tell the sons of Israel. And here's where he calls them a treasure. Um, Segula, he says that they're going to be Mamlechet Kohanim. They're going to be a kingdom of Kohanim. Ramban and Rashi have two different opinions. Ramban says literally a Kohen means someone that serves in the house. Rashi says no, he's talking about Sarim, they're going to be a princess, so they're a kingdom of princes and a holy nation. So that's the information and the elevation that they received on the second of Sivan. On the third of Sivan, Moses took the words of the people back to Hashem. From here, actually, our sages say, what did Moses think? God didn't hear the answer. He has to go tell God. From here, we know that if you were asked to bring back information, you need to bring back information without wondering if the person knows it anyway. You do your job. On the fourth of Sivan, Moses tells Hashem that the Jewish people said it's not the same hearing the words directly from the king or hearing it from a messenger. They want to hear the words directly from God. So Hashem agrees with them. And Hashem says, but if that be the case, they're going to have to cleanse themselves, purify themselves. And primarily the purifying themselves has to do with marital relationships, because if, if the semen does not turn into life, then it can cause um, impurity. And that can happen up to 72 hours. So Hashem's response was they're going to have to make sure that they're pure. Hence, they should separate themselves from marital relationships for the two days or the three days, as I shared with you. Now, on the fifth day, Moses builds an altar, a mizbeach, at the foot of the mountain. He puts up 12 monuments, one for each tribe. And he says that, and he speaks to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people give the famous answer on the fifth of Sivan, na'aseh v'nishma. They said, we will do and we will hear. And because they gave precedence to we will do before we will hear, Therefore, angels came down and placed crowns 
upon each one of their heads two crowns, one crown representing the we will do and one crown representing the we will hear. But the only reason they got these two crowns is not because they said those two things, but that they gave precedence, acceptance, just faith. We will do whatever you say, and then we will ask you what it is that you're saying. On the 6th of Sivan is the famous story where all the wonders are happening at Mount Sinai, thunders, lightning, fire, smoke, and God gives the Ten Commandments. Okay, so now that we understand the lineup of what happened, we understand a couple of things here. Number one, on the 5th of Sivan, the day before the Torah was given, the Jewish people were already at such a level, uh, such a virtue, such a high level of spirituality and connection to God that they were wearing two crowns as the prince of God. So therefore, already on the 5th of Sivan, they were in such a great and exalted state of being. The Rebbe goes further and says, not only on the 5th of Sivan, but on Rosh Chodesh Sivan, they were already on such a high level of exaltedness in their relationship with God. Number one, and here the Rebbe breaks down this verse unbelievably. Rabbi Smith, you'll just please keep an eye on the time for me because when I get into this, I kind of lose the time. So please just let me know. Give me, give me like a, a seven-minute notice. Okay. So we have over can here. I, can this... I ask a quick question? Sure, please. Uh, my question is that if the Avos, if the patriarchs are like just a fragrance as a, compared to Moshe Rabbeinu, how is it that we go to Hebron all the time? But we so, don't go to where Moshe Rabbeinu is because we don't know. Very good question. So number one, Rav Shalom, in general, it's not that Moshe Rabbeinu was a higher level. We're actually saying that you and I are on a higher level. That Moshe was on a higher level that the Medrash says. The seventh is the most precious. But we're talking about you and I. So let's understand two parts of this question. Number one, why are they only fragrance and why are we higher than that? What does it mean? And number two, you asked a very amazing question, and I want to just strengthen your question. The Mishnah says that you cannot start the service in the Holy Temple until the Kohen announces, has the sun risen in Hebron? Only when they answer him, yes, the sun has risen in Hebron, can they begin all the service in the Holy Temple. And the reason is because without those that are laying in Hebron, which is our forefathers, our patriarchs and our matriarchs, we cannot do anything in the temple. So I want to just share, when we talk about fragrance versus the essence oil, and obviously you're asking me the question that's the heart of this whole teaching, but I want to just give like a pre-answer to what the Rebbe is doing here. When we talk about the difference between the essence versus the fragrance, we're talking about only in one dynamic. The fragrance does not become permanent. So when someone faints, you give him strong smell, smelling salt. That's powerful. But a second later, the smell is gone. 
Hence, we're taught that when Jacob was doing his genetic engineering for the sheep, they should be born with black spots or stripes, whatever the deal he was making with Lavan, it says that what he was doing with those sticks is spiritually equivalent to what we would do, we do every day with filling. The difference is that when Jacob finished with those sticks, he could have very nicely sat on his 12 sons, make a campfire and use those sticks for marshmallows because the sticks that was used does not become holy. The reason for that is, and we're taught by our sages, that when God created the world, we first have the verse in Hallel, Hashemayim, Shemayim, Lahashem, Vahores, Natan, Levnei Adam. Heaven belongs to the celestial and the earth belongs to the terrestrial. And the Medrash gives an example and this beautiful explanations why they picked the example of Rome and Syria. But that's what they use. They say the example that one was on top of the mountain, one was on the bottom of the mountain, and they were not allowed to, the top wasn't allowed to come down, and the down wasn't allowed to go up. What happened at Mount Sinai was that by Hashem saying, by Yered Hashem Alhar Sinai, and God descended upon Mount Sinai. And then after that, he said, by Yomer El Moshe Ale, you Moses ascend. Right then, he broke that decree that the spiritual and the physical are no more mutually exclusive from each other and isolated from each other. Hence, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they were not able to make permanent transformations in this world. While we, post Matan Torah, were, are able to, and we do it. And one of the discussions we're going to have now is how and why. But now I want to turn to the other part of the question that you asked, which is very important. So if they're only fragrance and we are the oil, then why do we need to talk about them and have them before we can do anything? It seems to be we just said that we got the real stuff. And the answer is ma'aseh avot siman libanim. We are taught the Medrash gives it a more detailed explanation of a list, what happened to the forefathers, what happened to their offspring, you and I. And he shows how everything works together. However, on the other hand, Hasidus says something deeper. Hasidus says to open up. You know, before you can plant seeds in the ground, you got to plow the ground. You got to break through. In order to open up the pipes, we need to have absolute, absolute self-sacrifice. Because human beings, like every creature, we are in the deepest level of our genetics. We are surviving is the most important. I am the center of my universe. My survival is the most important thing. You have plants in your house. You'll notice that when you put the plant somewhere, they will turn themselves around to face the sun. If you go to Yosemite Park, you do some research there, you will find out that the sequoia trees are, are actually fighting for survival when it comes to the roots and when it comes to getting sunlight. 
So everything that we'll ever do, we are stuck within the fingerprints of arrogance. And I don't mean now arrogance in the, in the, in the most crude level. I mean it in I am the center of my universe. So much so that the Torah tells me that I should desecrate Shabbat and get to the hospital because survival overrules the Chaybahem. Now, in order to begin the process in which God becomes the center of our universe, before God gives it to us, we need to have an Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We have to have Moses. We have to have these people that we call them Nune Yamim. They're sea creatures, not land creatures. Because the sea creature is part and parcel with its source of life. The sea creature is in the water. We're not in the earth. We're on top of the earth. There is actually an opinion that says that when you go to the mikvah, if you're holding on to a fish and the water doesn't touch your hand, it's kosher because the fish halachically is water, according to one opinion. Hence, these people, they weren't creations of a creator. They reached such a level of self-abnegation, total transparency, that they were able to open us up to the fulfillment of what God says, if you want to be with me, there's no I and he. There's only I and the expression of I, which is you. Hence, we need to have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob open us up to that level so that we can later get the Torah. So even though it's only thanks to them that we are where we are, however, the Rebbe would often explain how can we bring Mashiach if all those great mouth giants didn't bring Mashiach. And the Rebbe would quote the teaching that it's like a midget on the shoulders of a giant. The bottom line is the giant can be 60 feet tall. The midget is one foot tall. But only when the midget is on the shoulders of the giant can we now reach that which is 61 feet off the ground. So now you understand, the. I hope the, I'm explaining it right, the answer to your question is, that we are the midget, but we reach because we're sitting on their shoulders. And nevertheless, they could not reach, but they made it possible that we should reach. Now the question is, how did that take place? So the Rebbe presents the question, not the way I just presented it to you, which is the way most of the other Rebbe's presented it, where it becomes about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and us, no. The Rebbe starts the question on Rosh Chodesh Sivan. He starts the question in the Mount Sinai revelation, which begins on Rosh Chodesh Sivan. And the Rebbe dissects every single word of that verse, that first verse. What does it mean on the third month? What is the level of three? The level of three is the ultimate level because one is stuck in its oneness. It cannot it cannot entertain anything which is antithetical to itself. That can't be God. God is not stuck in one. Two represents opposites, separation. It's only three that says you have A and B, but through C, we can understand that A and B are ultimately two coexisting expressions 
of the oneness of God. And then the Rebbe goes on to say, not just about the number three, he talks about the name Sinai. And he says like this, he quotes the sages that say, it's a, it's a piece of the Talmud in, in Tractic Shabbos. It says that Sinai has five names. And he goes through all the five names in the Gemara. The Rebbe wants to go straight to the name Sinai. Now the name Sinai, there's, he quotes the sage that says, why is it called Sinai? Even though Sinai is with a Samach, you know that the Samach and the Sin are interchangeable in the teachings. For example, you literally have the Rambam plan, is spelling out the word Sota with a Sin instead of a Samach sometimes. So Sinai with a Samach, the town would use it with a Sin, and now it becomes hatred, Sina. And he quotes why? Because at Mount Sinai, Yorda Sina Leumas. There was a hatred to all other nations because you all were given the opportunity to accept the Torah and you didn't, and the Jews did. Now, in the teachings of Hasidus, there's no hatred to the Gentile. I mean, just let's put things in perspective here. When the Egyptians that killed the Jewish babies and tortured them were drowning and the angels were singing, God told the angels, don't sing. My creatures are being killed. This is about the Egyptians who did the worst to the Jews. How much more so we don't say that God hates any Gentiles. And, and I want to be careful here with what I'm saying. I, I want to share with you a story that I heard from the Rebbe because many of us, you know, we proclaim our identity with the Shelo Asani Go format. I'm me because I'm not him. That means I have to put him down for me to be up. I just want to share with you, when the Rebbe talks about the specialty of a Jew, I literally saw this video. You can probably look it up on YouTube. It's a gem video where this guy comes to the Rebbe and his child had never a horrible disease. And he asked the Rebbe these words, can you take away the disease from my son and give it to a Gentile? And the Rebbe's face turned serious and said, and why do you need me to give it to a Gentile? Why can't I send it into the ocean? So when we see the Gemara says that there was a hatred to the other nations, Chassidus tells us which other nation? Chassidus talks about the goy shebekir becha. Each and every one of us have a goy within us. That is the animalistic soul. That is the evil inclination. That is the body. That is all about the egocentric. So now we quote the verse that says like this, that the Torah is called Oiz Visoishia. It's both. It's Oiz is strength. Toshia means weakening. And he explains like this, that even though the soul is a piece of God, it is a chelik alakai mimal. And the Alter Rebbe adds on the word to that teaching, mamish, this is not metaphorical, so much so that there's a teaching which is just unbelievable. There's a teaching, and I quote to you. You don't usually find this teaching. I found it in one place. It says like this, the soul of a Jew is a piece of creator that became creation. That's how serious it is that this is a piece of God. So if so, what does it need strength from the Torah? So you're right. The neshama in heaven doesn't need strength from Torah. 
but the neshama goes through contractions in order to be able to come into my life. And my life is a big imposition on the neshama. In my life, the neshama all of a sudden is subjected to you have to eat, you have to drink, you have to play, you have to make money, you have to have a retirement plan, you have to go on a vacation. So all of a sudden, the neshama needs koyach. And the koyach is the Torah. Ein oiz ele Torah. But on the other hand, for the, to for, the, for the Torah and the neshama with the Torah to accomplish what it ha has to do, it has to have toshia. It has to break the arrogance, the entitlement, the narcissism of the animalistic soul. Now, it sounds like I'm using words upon the animalistic soul that like he's an oisvar of ashaigit. No, let's keep things straight here. The animalistic soul is not bad. We didn't say evil inclination. We said animalistic soul. The animalistic soul has one definition of intellect and emotions. I want to exist. I don't want to die. Remember, animals are not bad. Animals have three primary issues in their reptilian brain, in their limbic system, and whatever small frontal cortex they have. They have to focus on eat, don't be eaten, and procreate. That's all. They're not bad. It's just existence, I, I, I. But if we want to make that the Torah should accomplish what it has to in the transformation of who I am physically, then I need to get beyond the I, I, I. So hence, the Torah has to cause a toishia, a weakening. I, I want to be more specific here, even though he doesn't do it in the mimer, but let's, let's, let's get really grounded. My definition of love and fear, my definition of good and bad is very simple. If I am facing annihilation, I'm scared. If I am facing diminishment, I am scared. Someone who embarrassed me in public and diminished my, my who I am in front of others, I don't like him. Someone who compliments me, someone who helps me, someone who brings out that I am a force to be reckoned with, oh, him I like. So the love and the fear from the animalistic point of view, it's not bad, but it's egocentric. The love of the godly soul is the opposite. In 1977, Simcha's Torah, the Rebbe had a heart attack. In 1978, before the high holidays, Dr. Weiss was giving the Rebbe tests. And he asked the Rebbetzin, in a conversation with the Rebbetzin, is your husband afraid of pain? As a doctor, he had to know because pain can trigger off stuff with the immune system. And the Rebbetzin smiled and said like this, my husband is not afraid of pain, but he is very afraid of the days of awe that are about to take place. So the fear of a tzaddik, a fear of a godly soul, is not whether I'm going to be smaller or not. It's whether there's going to be a kiddush Hashem or a chilul Hashem. Is God's name going to be yiskadal, yiskadal, shmei or not? The soul loves those who bring out the kiddush Hashem. If one human being points at you and says, you know, that Jew... He's someone that you should learn from. 
That is what is loved by the godly soul. Not whether he says, oh, you see that guy, he's so rich, he's so smart, he's such a businessman. That's the animalistic soul getting excited. The godly soul gets excited when he sees that I'm getting out of the way and allowing for God to flow. So now that we understand that the Sinai part, the greatness that the Jews reached on the first day of Sivan, when they were at Mount Sinai, they already experienced and embraced the strengthening of the godly soul and the weakening of the egocentric I, 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 I. Ramanda Futafa is a very great man. He's not alive no more. He passed away in 1995. He said like this. He said he was a Russian. He came to America and he said, if you want to understand the challenge of the American people, it is the only language on the face of the earth where I is capitalized and the Y of you is small. That's our challenge. And that was the Oiz Visoshia that we have to go through. On top of that, we all know this famous line that when it says they camp, it doesn't say by Yachanu. In one place, the verse says by Yichan. And Rashi points out why the singular, because they were in unity. And we know the power of unity, the whole completion of the entire Talmud is that God found no vessel for his blessing, but peace, but unity. So this all happened on Rosh Chodesh. Now let's up it a notch. On the fifth, we already reached the total embodiment of faith and trust that we didn't tell God, hey, one second, I'm not signing blindly here. What exactly do you want from us? No, we said we will do. Now tell us what you want from us to do. On top of that, not only did they reach that level of absolute transparency and humility and faith and trust, on top of that, angels put crowns on their head. Crown on the head is something so amazing because the human, the human power begins with the brain. I think, I say, I understand. The crown is circular. The crown is, it's not me, it's God. So we had double crowns. Now the Rebbe comes to his question. So if we already had Rosh Chodesh, and we already had Sinai, and we already had the number three, and we already had the number, we had the unity, and we already reached a level of realizing that we give presidents to we do before we hear, and we had then angels putting two crowns on our heads, what happened the next day? What happened at Mount Sinai when it really, God gave us the Torah? In order to answer this question, the Rebbe says, I'm going to answer another question. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with uh, the joke where the priest asked the rabbi, why do you Jews always answer a question with a question? And the priest looked at the, the rabbi looked at the priest and said, why not? Very often, you're going to answer a question with a question. The question is, Throughout the Torah, whenever we find Hashem giving Moshe Rabbeinu a commandment to tell the Jews, he always uses the word lamor. Lamor in English is literally translated as saying, but the real word lamor, prefix lamet is to, emor means say. Lamor means God is telling Moses, I'm telling you this to say to the others. Lamor. Now, that makes sense in every single place in the Torah besides the Ten Commandments. 
Because in the Ten Commandments, number one, that entire generation was there. The Rebbe quotes the famous teaching that says that all the previous generations and all the future generations, their souls were there, including the souls of a convert. A soul that wasn't there will never be able to convert. The only reason a person can convert is because his soul was at Mount Sinai. So there's absolutely no one who didn't hear this straight from God. So what is God saying? Lamer to who? Say to who? And the Rebbe quotes the answer from Hasidus, which means like this. Lamer doesn't mean that I should tell it to someone else. Lamer means that in the year 2022 in Florida, where we're sitting here and learning Torah, it shouldn't be me talking. It shouldn't be you talking. It should be God talking. Now, what that means is the sages tell us that just like when you study Torah, when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, it was done with fear, with dread. Literally, the people were dying at every word. The spark was jumping out, returning to the mother flame. There was such a strong fear going on. So too, when we learn Torah now, we should have that same feeling. Why? Now we understand why. Because when we're learning Torah now, it's not us talking. It's God again saying it. Hence, our sages tell us, whoever is learning or reading, and the Rebbe in parentheses says, reading, learning, or both. Even if you're just reading the words, because God gave us at Mount Sinai, Lamer, meaning that, and here the Rebbe quotes the verse, where it says, I am responding to your words. And, and he quotes the apostle that says, that Hashem says, I will place my words on your lips. Hence, the whole thing that happened at Mount Sinai was that now, when a physical human being is learning or reading Torah, it's not him talking. It's Hashem once again talking. Hence, we're taught that whenever someone learns Torah, Hashem is sitting right across from him studying Torah. Now, the question is, one second, and what happened when Avraham Avinu learned Torah? So I'm sitting here learning Torah. My mind's already racing in my next meeting. And, uh, you know, if I wasn't on Zoom, I'd probably be on my phone texting while I'm learning. Oh, this learning is Hashem talking. But Avram Avinu, who ran away and stayed in Noyach's yeshiva for 15 years and learned, that's not learning. Yaakov, who didn't he learn out from the time when he, when he went to sleep on the rock, Rashi says, he, this is the first time he laid down to sleep. Because when he was in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'ever, he didn't sleep. He was just studying Torah. That learning is not God talking. But you and me, where God's talking by us? Where's the logic in that? The logic is in the beginning of the Pasuk, the first of the Ten Commandments. Hashem Now, the Rebbe does not quote this, but I'm going to quote it just to understand what the Rebbe is saying here. In Hasidus, we talk about the mikvah in the Beis Migdash, And it figures out how high it was. And how does it figure out how high it was? Because the water can't be higher than its source. 
So this whole ain atom business, you can look it up over there. We figure out how high. Now, this is used in teachings throughout Hasidus to prove that we cannot go higher than our source. So the source of all human beings, the source of all creations, the source of all angels is what? The or Sof, the light of God, not the essence of God. In other words, when you study Kabbalah, you learn about the contraction. What happens is in order for finite beings to come from an infinite God, there was a contraction where the essence gets pulled out, the infinite side of the light gets pulled out, and only the finite revelation shines so that we can now have finite human beings not turning into Mexican jumping beans. You put too much light into us and we're gonna become Mexican jumping beans. Some of us and our kids are anyway that way, bouncing around. But that's what happens. Put in a, 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 one, a one-tenth uh, appliance into a 220 socket and you're gonna have an explosion. So everything comes from the light of God. Hence, let's go back to what God told Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only had the names of God. A name is a revelation. My friend, if you were the only person on this planet, you wouldn't need a name. The reason you need a name is that someone else can call you. So a name is not me. A name is the way I relate to others. Name is revelation. Name is light. But the essence, God says, I did not reveal to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because it wasn't time. Hence, we now understand that when the verse, when the sages say upon the verses that God's descended and he told Moses, go up, what does it say then? Our sages say, I'm going to have to start this process. Why? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their spiritual levels and what they did through their Torah mitzvot in the celestial worlds and in the revelation of God's presence, the Shem Hashem was untouchable. But it was only the name of God. When God said on the, on the Ten Commandments, he didn't say Hashem Elokecha. He said, Anochi, I. Now, interesting to know, Anochi is a very unusual word. You know that everywhere else we say Ani, Ani Hashem. Ani Hashem Elokechem Emes. We don't say Anochi. Anochi is a unique word. Does it even come from Hebrew? Discussions. But the word Anochi stands for Ana, Nafshit, Kitavit, Yehavit. I have placed myself into the Torah. Hence, we have the teaching of our sages and pashas, Teruma. Teruma is talking about a donation. But the sages say no. Read the word Teruma. I'm sorry, Rabbi Smith. I don't mean no. People How give me minutes. But Teruma is the word Torah Mem. And it says, Teruma. When you take the Torah, you don't take my light. You take me. You digest me. That became possible only at Mount Sinai. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even Moshe, up to the point of Mount Sinai, they, through their service to God, was connecting to the source of life, which is the light of God. The essence of God is above and beyond that. Only by Matan Torah, when Hashem broke the boundaries, and he said, Anochi, I'm giving you myself, 
Now, I want to share with you a painful story. And I, I see I'm running out of time. I don't want to finish with a painful story. So I'll finish with a painful story and a good story. You have no idea, my dear friends, and I'm sure Rabbi Smith can testify to the same thing. As a rabbi, I have parents sitting by me crying. Their son, this and that, whatever it may be, from, from the worst to the worst, the intermarriage, or just I'm putting gray hair on their heads. And they cry to me and they say, tell me, Rabbi, what didn't I give my son? And I had the painful moment to tell them the one thing your son wanted most you didn't give him, you. He didn't want your money. He didn't want your toys. He, did, he wanted you. Did you give him you? Because when you don't give you, then this relationship in return is not trustworthy. I'm going to share with you another story. There's a man in my community here that his name is Jason. He's a fireman. He's a very interesting man. He tells me this story. He said he took off three days and he had not his wife, not his daughters. It was a father-son thing. They went to Orlando. And he spent money, the hotel, the hotel in the Disney world. He went all out. He comes back. And on the way back, he asks his son. His son's name is Noah. He says, Noah, what was your favorite part? Guys, you ready for this? Noah said to his father, my favorite part was when we were in the hotel at night together in bed watching TV. Not Disney World. Not <laughs> Sea World. Dad, I had you. You and I probably all know the same story because every rabbi tells it. It's in our handbook of jokes where a kid asks his father, Dad, how much do you make an hour? And the father says, what, what, what kind of question is that? Says, dad, I want to know how much you make an hour. And the dad says, well, you want to know I'm a lawyer. I make $3.50 an hour. And the, dad, the kid says, Dad, if I give you $3.50, can you spend an hour with me? I'm telling you all the stories to tell you what God did. Abram, Isaac, and Jacob did not have God. He had the light of God. At Mount Sinai, God said, Kindalach. I'm not giving you my wisdom. I'm not giving you my light. I'm giving you me. I want to share with you how deep this is. Dalt Rebbe quotes the teachings of our sages in Tanya that says, when a Jew sins, he has the king's head in a handlock, in a, a headlock, and he's schlepping him into the other side. How can that be? I'll tell you how it can be. Because when God gave us a nochi, he was vulnerable. Do you know why you and I don't feel comfortable being so vulnerable with our kids? Because we don't want to get hurt. You know what a teenager is, my friends? I'll tell you what a teenager is. A teenager is where God told a parent, I want to see how you feel to have a human being created in your image who denies your existence. And I don't want to go through that pain. So let me just, you know, oh. Hashem said, no, Anohi, I, I am giving you myself so much so that when you talk my words, it's going to be me talking. And when you sin, it's going to be me you're dragging into the mud. And when you sin, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to become homeless for 2000 years because to kill you is to kill me because I gave me to you. Now that we have the Anochi Hashem 
Now we have the lamer. Now we understand that what happened on that morning was higher than the crowns, higher than the Sinai, higher than the number three, because that's the moment where God said, now you have me. With this, I want to just conclude. The Rebbe does not conclude this in the Maimah, but I want to conclude to you with an unbelievable teaching. The Talmud says that there was a great sage that said, Imlav haikoyomo, if not for this day of the sixth of Sivan, kama yoise ikebishuki. There's a bunch of Joes in the market. There's a bunch of Joes in this world. What made me who I am is this day. Why? Because this is the day where we went from quantity to quality relationship with God. This is the day where God didn't just say, I will take care of you. I will give you. I will pay for your college. I will make sure that you have. No. God said one thing. I belong to you. That's the story. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Lipschitz. That was uh, out of this world. Uh, totally amazing. Amazing. Great, great uh, preparation for Shavuos. Very powerful. Uh, I think we do have a few questions here. So um, is there anyone that wants to ask anything? Yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, ben? Yeah, I wanted to ask, not exactly what the rabbi said, but what does it mean, Isru Chag? Isru Chag? Yes. So it's interesting. Isru Chag has a couple of meanings. One of the words of Isur is in Hebrew, Isur means prisoner, Asir, which means it's tied. So one of the definitions is Isru Chag, it's still connected. It's the day after the holiday. So you can look at it not as the day where the holiday is no more, it's Isru Chag, we're connecting it to the holiday. Okay, so so it's not a prohibiting uh... No, no, it's not from the word, yeah, it's not from the word asur that is prohibited to do. David, David. Not to my knowledge. Yeah, I was going to ask about, um, you were saying about how uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the fragrance. But at the same time, we see in Torah that Hashem considers the greatest offerings, sacrifices, and it says, that it's a pleasant fragrance. So it specifically uses that idea of fragrance to indicate Hashem's pleasure with the Jewish people's offerings. Beautiful, beautiful question. But we need to take a step further. Why is it by the sacrifices that God talks about fragrance? He doesn't say it about um, studying Torah. He doesn't say it about anything else. And the answer is because it is sacrifices, there's the transformation of the physical goes back to what we were saying. So when we talk about post, post Matan Torah, when we talk about fragrance, we're not talking about the spirituality. We're talking about the transformation of the physical. Hence, this fragrance is a total different fragrance. I think Mordechai, did, Mordechai, did you have a question? Okay. Well, thank you. So, so oh, uh, Susan, Susan. Susan, you got I want to know, I would like to know uh, if uh, the doctor understood what the Rebison said about her, about her husband. Ah, 
So that, that's a beautiful question. I just finished reading a diary. You see, the Rebbe's secretary, Rebbe Label Grona, he kept a diary of every day that he was with the Rebbe. Now, he started being with the Rebbe before the Rebbe became Rebbe. And in that diary, he has a huge piece of that whole era from wow. the heart attack with the doctors. Wow. It is unbelievable the relationship and the patience and the explaining that went on. So Dr. Weiss had, he had discussions with the Rebbe. I'll just give you an example. One of the questions Rebbe asked Dr. Weiss was, in the laws of physics, if you want to have the full pressure of a machine, it has to be grounded on solid. Because if it's not grounded on solid, every thrust, it's going to shake. And if it shakes, it's going to lose energy. So the Rebbe asked him, why is the heart surrounded with liquid? Why wasn't the heart connected to a very solid base? So I'm just sharing you the type of conversations that they were having. So Dr. Weiss, he got to a point where he, he appreciated certain things about the Rebbe that unfortunately I, I never got to know or see. So yeah. He, he, I believe he had a very great thing. He's still alive, 120. And yeah, he clearly understood what that meant. Thank you, Rabbi, very much. Thank you. I hope you'll come back because you are a riveting speaker, wonderful speaker. Right, thank you. Thank you. Thank and you. you you're very understandable for me. And I'm a beginning Torah you know, person that's just beginning. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm going to conclude with what the Rabbi concludes in the Mimer. The Rebbe says he wants to quote his father-in-law. His father-in-law always, when it came to Shavuos, he spoke about the Torah. He said two things. A, we should accept it with joy. And B, we should accept it internally, not just externally. So really, may we have true joy. May there be health. May everything that this world is going through just come to an end. And just like at the first Mount Sinai, God lifted the Mount Sinai and made us a chuppah over our head. May we have the final, final wedding. May Mashiach come with the resurrection. We should all be in a world of peace in Israel. We really receive the Torah. Amen. 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 Amazing, amazing. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you.